So today's text is First uh, Peter chapter three verse one to twelve. Uh, I was thinking of what title to put. Uh, it's not displayed here, but I went with the title "Living with Strife." And when I this was earlier in the, in the week, and I was like, it's a little. That sounds like a, the title sounds a little uh, intense. Uh, is that appropriate? Like living with strife, uh, and so I kept it as a tentative title. Uh, but by the end of the week, I realized that that's a very appropriate. Um, title for the week especially we live with strife on a daily basis um, the world we know we live with strife uh, yesterday we all uh, i'm sure we all woke up with the terrible news of uh, tensions escalating in uh, in the middle east in palestine israel conflict um, which is of course a sensitive volatile issue in the world um, in terms of its implications on the rest of the, the world the western world uh, their significance throughout but also personally for me uh, there's deep entanglements with faith, with Christianity in, in some of my close uh, uh, relatives and uh, so on and so forth. So I was like, man, <laughs> uh, what a timing. Because you know that uh, what, what's happening in Manipur as well. Uh, there's a lot of strife and a lot of ethnic tensions in, in uh, my part of the world. Uh, that happening, the ethnic strife in Manipur and this uh, and all the rhetorics flying around in the air is like, yeah, that's right. We live, we live in a world with strife. We live with the mess and uh, the, the, the entanglements of so many things in, in this world. Uh, and sometimes we can leave them at the door when we, when we, when we you know, like get into the house, try and forget about it. Uh, but also there are some issues, there are certain strife in our life as well that we can't really leave at the door, so to say. Uh, some of these can be relational. Uh, some of these can be personal strife that we have with those people that we love, people we know, people that uh, know people who know us. Um, uh, and uh, even in that case, in my own uh, last week, uh, I'll spare you the details, but there are uh, disagreements and strife with, with, in our extended families. And uh, I'm not here to tell you the story about that, but just to show you, and I'm sure you relate with this as well that there's strife even in the family, people that you know so well, mm. that saps the energy from you. Um, so with all of this happening, there's the heaviness, the, the f- feeling that, yes, life is lived with strife. And to be honest, I have a tendency to jump to saying, ah, it'll be all right, uh, it'll, be, it'll, be, it'll, it'll all be all right. Um, minimize sometimes the gravity of the situation and not think about it sometimes. I would prefer to just ignore it and drown it out with entertainment or, um, you know, like Facebook reels and uh, or I, with work and with uh, other things that you entertain in your heads about uh, uh, with, either with work or play and you kind of drown it out. But um, that's probably not the right attitude to, to deal with strife. Um, today's text uh, kind of helps us to have a kind of a paradigm. Uh, there are many things that we cannot draw directly and I will uh, touch on that later, but there are some paradigms that we can think through uh, from today's text. Peter's attitude to strife is not denial. He, he is all for addressing the strife, all for facing the strife. Uh, last week, we looked at the text uh, in which he tells persecuted Christians living within, in the Roman Empire to live in the world. Don't disengage just because you are suffering. Live in the world with all the mess, with all the contradictions that you have in the world. Live in it. 
So his attitude towards life is not sanitized, is not sterilized, it's not a Disney version uh, of life in which everything is rosy. He understands that there are strife and his attitude is, is not of denial. He acknowledges the mess and, and things that are disturbing uh, uh, to, to Christians. So last week we saw that there were Christians, uh, the, the audience, the readers of 1 Peter, who were living under enormous pressure in Asia Minor, in present-day Turkey, uh, under the Roman Empire. They were, uh, they were living under authorities who were actively against them. Uh, Emperor Nero, although his uh, infamous persecution is yet to happen when this was written, uh, they were living already under the, the heavy pressure of, uh, of being uh, of a hostile government, so to say, hostile empire. Um, and the attitude of the, the society was antagonistic towards the Christians. Uh, they were misunderstood. They were often intentionally misrepresented. Uh, there was slander. Uh, I mentioned last week that there was a slander that Christians eat flesh and drink the blood, uh, in referring to the communion practices and uh, accusing them of uh, things like um, uh, cannibalism and these barbaric practices. Uh, so there were intentional misrepresentation, slander, uh, uh, people accusing them of inciting revolution against, against the empire. And so the logical temptation for Christians would be to live in isolation. Like, okay, none of this, I don't care. I'm going to focus in heaven. I'm going to focus on the clouds and up there. I'm going to focus on the coming of Jesus and I will disengage from society. Peter says, don't do that. Engage, live in the world, honor the authorities, honor the king, honor the mad emperor, uh, embrace civil responsibilities in, in, in the world that you live, um, honor the, the governors and authorities, the, the systems that are in place. Notice how the responsibility is laid on those people who are already suffering. The, those who are already persecuted, they are the ones who must take the responsibility to, 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 uh, to serve the society. Last week, after the Sunday service, uh, we were riding back on the bus with Chow and we were talking about this and it's like, both of us agreed, all of us agreed that this is really hard teaching. Like, how can you tell a group that's already being persecuted, already being, already being oppressed, tell them to go and serve the people that are oppressing them? How can you tell them to go and love, or not love necessarily, but honor the emperor? This is really hard teaching, to be sure. And we, we, we do not take it lightly. So there's strife in, in, on the institutional level, but as the text today in, from verse 1 tells us, there's also strife on a more personal level, on a more relational level. So if last week the focus was more on institutional kind of strife with the government, with governors, with authority, with emperor, so on and so forth, today's one focuses on strife within the family, the household, the most uh, closest unit of relationship that, uh, uh, that uh, people have, the most intimate relationship, so to say. Those who live in the closest proximity with you, uh, who knows you the most, who identifies with you, strife can also permeate into those relationships. Uh, so Peter is very realistic. Uh, he, he is all for facing the truth um, that relationships, the most intimate relationships, can get stretched, can get strained. There can be strife even in this closest of relationship. So let's read the, the first section of uh, uh, chapter 3 and we will 
draw all these thoughts back to the, the section that Andrew has read for us from verse 8. But let's read first, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 to 7. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelries um, or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that, that it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hopes in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called her her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to, to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayer. This is, tough. This is a tough text to, to talk about. Um, uh, but if you read properly, uh, I, I don't know about you, but you get the sense that something's going on in this community. Uh, something intense is going on. And we're not sure what it is from reading this text, but something is going on. Some, something heavy. Uh, we are listening into a text without any context, so to say. We don't know what, we don't see much of happening out there. It's like watching a film or a, a, a reading a story in which you don't know exactly what's going on, but you can sense the heaviness, the mood. Um, something, the subtext is heavy in, 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 this, in, this, uh, in, in this text. What's going on? If you probe a little, uh, a little deeper into the, uh, the scholarship in, in, on this text, we learn that in particular Christians in Asia Minor, the, the, the audience, the listeners here, the readers of 1 Peter, they were new believers. Most of them were new believers. And they were living in Asia Minor, as I said, under the Roman Empire. And many of, of the women who, were, who are wives in, in the household, they became Christians whereas their husbands did not. So there, there was, uh, there was and also vice versa, husbands became Christians, where, whereas the wives remain uh, unbelievers. So in that kind of a scenario, the relationships between the spouses were being stretched, and there was misunderstanding. And uh, I, I mentioned this last week as well. Religion and uh, daily life were entangled so deeply in these days, on, in those days, that uh, to change religion is such a radical step. Um, it's not just a matter of what uh, a convert chooses to do on Sunday for two hours. It involves a, a radical shift in their whole life because everything that they do in the civil life is related to religion, right? Uh, uh, civil responsibilities are related to the emperor and it involves an element of worshipping uh, religious elements in serving the emperor. So everything is, the religion is entangled with whole of life so that when somebody converts, it demands a radical shift in the way they live. Um, I've seen this played out in India as well, which is where I'm from. Um, really, a conversion or becoming a Christian is not simply just about, um, you know, like I said, uh, choosing what you want to do on a Sunday afternoon. It involves uh, sometimes radical shift in, in where you live, uh, the, the kind of companies that uh, you keep. So in the same way, this Christian, these wives and husbands uh, who became Christians, their relationships were being strained because of their choice to follow, follow Jesus. 
Um, so it's not just institutional, the strife, but also, also personal in, in the families, in the deepest uh, and the closest relationships that exist. Um, of course, it's not just a husband and wife's dynamic, I'm sure. It's also the, uh, the, within the family, um, um, the, the kind of close relationships that exist in the family. So first of all, we need to read this and be careful that we don't, um, we don't try to copy-paste this as rules for today uh, because there's a temptation to read these kinds of texts and assume that these are rules for households for today. That is, I think, a dangerous uh, use of the text, primarily because uh, this text, and of course, chapter 2 as well, talks about many things that are very different from our context. Like Nero, the, the infamous uh, empire Nero, that's not, uh, that's not our situation. Slaves and masters, which is a, a big part of the teaching in chapter 2, that's not our situation. So we cannot assume that we can just copy-paste what we see here um, and use that for today's, uh, 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 apply that in our today's context. Um, but we need to, but having said that, there are things that we can learn from, from this text. Um, and it's not so easy to just copy-paste, but we, we need to be careful uh, that we understand what's going on. Because the context, as we mentioned, of this text is of uh, a context of a heavily patriarchal society in which there are gender, specific gender roles. Uh, there are patterns of household rules, household norms uh, that, uh, that people followed. In fact, um, it was very interesting to learn that around this time, there were a lot of texts, a lot of documents being written about household rules. Like even theologians, uh, uh, early theologians like Tertullian, some of you may be slightly, uh, even remotely interested, interested in that, but it's just a bit of a nerd information. Theologians like Tertullian had written about household norms uh, for their particular context. So this genre of writing, genre of rules, is not too strange for those day and age. Uh, but it comes from a, an era of patriarchy where the general roles were stricter um, and it, it, it echoes views of household norms that are specific to the context. Like similar, just like this, uh, rules about, uh, about dressing, rules about uh, what the husband and wife must do in, uh, uh, in terms of their roles in the house, what husband should be, what wife should be, uh, adornment, all the stuff. Very similar to the, the text here. Um, but, and, and so this text is written for a particular context to early Christians, wives, women who had no support system like we do today, in, uh, who are living in an oppressive empire uh, with, a, with, a, with, a, um, with an emperor who is actively out to persecute the Christians. Uh, so it cannot be simply co-opted for, uh, for us today. But you note very quickly that the text is heavily focused on wives and the women. And I think there are two ways to read uh, this text. One is to read this and say, wow, this is an incredibly sexist text. Uh, it assumes so much uh, gender uh, kind of stereotyping, uh, especially if you are intending to incorporate this in today's uh, day and age. I think uh, that would be problematic uh, in, my own, in, my, in my perspective. Another way to read it though, is to read it in its context and to actually note that this is, a, this is a powerful text that actually empowers women who are living in, in their state of oppression. Uh, 
this is a powerful text that empowers Christians who are oppressed in their, in their experience of persecution. First of all, we note in verse uh, 6, I think, that the beauty, the worth of the wife or the woman is placed in who they are rather than their possession, rather than their material wealth, rather than, the, rather than their body. Now, today you might think, of course, that's obvious. I mean, uh, who, who even needs to say that? It's, it's, it's even mildly inappropriate to, to, to even think that. But again, in their time, in a patriarchal society, when the worth of women was based on their husbands, the worth of women was based on the material or the, even the physical appearance, uh, they had no political or they had no social standing besides their connection with their husband. So in that time, it's radical that Peter puts the value and the beauty of the woman in herself, uh, calls wives as of great worth to God. Um, so in that sense, it, it puts the value, the dignity, the identity of the wives on the, who they are in Christ, who they are in God. Secondly, we note that uh, in, um, in um, yeah, so in verse 4 and v- verse 5, verse 4 particularly, um, there's this, this motif, this idea of unfading beauty of great worth. And this, of course, echoes back to what was said in chapter 1, which was about the faith that we have, which is of great worth. The, the worth, the dignity of Christians, of believers, regardless of men or women, is the same. It's the same worth that comes from Christ. We are God's treasure. We are God's inheritance. Uh, and this is something that is, uh, is the identity of all believers, regardless of whether they're men or women. In other words, here Peter is essentially elevating the women and re- reminding the readers that women are equally equally the treasures of God, equally the great possession of God, same like men. The value and the worth of wives, women, men, all come from God in Christ. So Peter is actually making a rather strong claim that men and women are equally dependent on God and equally dependent on Christ, regardless of the gender, regardless of the material wealth, uh, the treasure of God, the Holy Spirit indwells everyone. I think that's powerful, even today, I would say, uh, in which our worth comes from possession, our worth comes from status, our worth comes from achievements or our particular participation in some agenda. Uh, the, our success is, is measured by those, uh, by those standards. And here, Peter reminds us that, no, no, our worth, our dignity, our, uh, who we are, our treasure uh, comes from our status as being in Christ because of God. None of, none of that external features is what uh, matters. And I think this is extremely important because this is the notion that believers, Christians, we have God's great blessing. We have God's great worth in us. Despite the strife, despite the difficulties, despite the slander that they faced, Peter reminds the earlier Christians that Christians start from a place of abundance. Christians start from a place of, uh, of being blessed, of being loved, of being already rich in God's mercy. So if we put these two things together, 
There, yes, there's strife. We must acknowledge that strife exists in this world, especially for the early Christians, even for us today. Uh, we, we live with strife, but we start from a place of abundance. Despite the experiences um, of persecution, of slander, of negativity, of hostility, discrimination, regardless of all this, in Christ, they are rich. They are abundant. They are immensely loved and they are cared for, right? They're cherished by God. God looks at Christians, regardless of how misunderstood, regardless of how poor, regardless of how oppressed they are, God looks at them and says, they are my precious possession. They are my holy nation. See, because without this notion of richness in Christ, what Peter is asking from the Christians is actually quite hard, as I hinted earlier, as we were talking with Chow as well. It almost amounts, if in, in my own head, in my head, it, it almost amounts to what in modern day we use gaslighting, putting the pressure on the the people who are already suffering, and saying you are responsible to take care of, uh, regardless of what you go through. Uh, it's almost telling persecuted people to honor the king. I mean, think about if somebody says that to me, <laughs> I'm not going to take that lightly. Uh, so without this notion of richness in Christ. Um, it's, uh, it's too much pressure, it's unrealistic pressure to put on Christians, to honor the king, to honor and serve people around you, to, honor the, uh, to serve the world, to bless the world. So it can put unreal traumatic pressure on the persecuted. Almost to say, you guys need to act up, you guys need to serve, you guys need to civil. But how can they serve when they are downtrodden, they are mistreated and persecuted? So this only makes sense when we remind ourselves that for Peter, Christians serve because they are already blessed. Christians work and they, are, they, they, uh, they, in, they do their best to be a blessing because they are already rich and they're already blessed abundantly in Christ. So they do that from a position of richness and plenty. Despite the experiences of strife and poverty, in Christ they are rich. So this is where we come to verse 8, um, and let's continue reading. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep the tongue from evil, and the lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Peter encouraged them, as people who are already loved, as people who are already cherished by God, as people whose dignity and whose identities are not at risk. As people who are of great worth to God, who have God's goodness, as such people do good in this world. Turn your tongue from evil, he says. Lips from deceitful speech. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Because God is on the side of those who do righteous. Yeah. Among the Christians, Peter reminds them, there is no room for misunderstanding. There is no room for slander. There is no room for discrimination and misrepresentation, mistreatment. Um, 
but rather Peter reminds them, all of you believers, be, do not be like the world, but be like-minded, he says. Have unity of mind, one heart, no misunderstanding, no prejudice against one another, like the, like the, like, like the uh, authorities were having against Christians, like the empire was having against the Christians. Be sympathetic, not mistreating one another, not abusing one another. Love one another, be compassionate, and be humble, not arrogant like the emperor, not arrogant like the authorities who persecute you. So because of this, when wives, coming back to what, where we began, wives experiencing persecution, experiencing mistreatment, can they, regardless of that experience, they are rich in Christ. They are capable of courage. They are capable of love and service because she is honored by God. She is not lesser than men, like the, like the way that society considers them. They are not dependent on their possessions or their physical uh, appearance like society values them. What about the, the slaves who are persecuted? Regardless of their experience of um, mistreatment, they are dignified. With solid identity in Christ, even though they are slaves and wor working under a masters, their, their identity is unthreatened by their status. There's nothing that can steal away their dignity and their honor. They're valued and they're loved, regardless of their status as slaves working for a master. What about the misunderstood or the mistreated Christian who are persecuted? God sees the truth, Peter reminds them. God knows the truth. Even if society misunderstands you, God knows the truth and God will honor the integrity of the believers who remain steadfast. The call to serve the call to submit and the call to be to have responsibility for the world it it comes from a place of having not not poverty we are called we are not called to serve because we are lesser we are called to serve because we are already blessed we are already uh, in, rich in christ uh, with his blessing it's a place not of poverty but of abundance because we are god's people with God's riches, and because we are His possession, we can also act humbly, with humility. Peter calls uh, these wives, these women who are caught in unhealthy hierarchies, Peter calls slaves who are caught in unhealthy uh, work, work uh, culture, P P Peter calls them to find the identities of great worth in God and to live out that life in humility and as a blessing to, to the world. Peter calls the persecuted to honor the king, to, be, to have responsibility and uh, to serve the society that they live in, out of their riches, out of their abundance. So, just a few thoughts about the implications. When we live with strife, I think it's crucial to be reminded of who we are in Christ, of our riches in Christ. When we go through strife, when we are misunderstood, when we are misinterpreted, when we are mistreated, we can be generous with our forgiveness. We can be generous with our kindness and patience because we know of God's kindness in our lives, in our own lives. We know of His lavish generosity to us. 
We know that Christ gave us not just his attention and his time and his listening ear, but he gave up his own body. And that generous generosity has been given to us. We know this. So we can also be lavish in our forgiveness, in our kindness, in our grace to this world. When we see strife around the world, sometimes in, in ways that we cannot uh, intervene or we cannot participate, even in those times, we can pray. We can turn to God knowing that he is redeeming the world. We can work and we can serve in whatever small capacities that we are able in this world, knowing that God's power and God's spirit is with us. Uh, giving us the responsibility and the calling to do what is right and to fight what is evil in this world. Uh, there's one last verse that I just want to highlight. Uh, this, um, it, it says um, something about, uh, I don't have it in my notes, but it came to my mind. It's about the uh, wife being the, the weaker vessel. Uh, I think we, we can say a lot of things about, about these texts. Uh, hang on, let me find it in my... Um, Verse 7, okay. That's right. Um, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Again, we could read this multiple ways, but I I think of it this way. Peter is making a factual uh, kind of an an observation of what is happening in, in the society in which wives are the weaker partner because of whatever reasons. And Peter reminds the Christians to honor those who are weak, to, to look out for those who are vulnerable. Um, so, so Peter is fully acknowledging the experience of oppression, of, of persecution, and he acknowledges those who are able to stand up for those who are weaker. And I think that ties in with the responsibilities that believers have with one another in the community of faith. Uh, We look out for one another as we also serve the world. Let us remember that you are strong and you are rich in the world when you know that you are loved deeply by God. And I think this is true for friendship and in family, in peers, uh, especially taking care of a two-year-old toddler. Uh, We we always uh, read that uh, children who grow up in a family in which they feel loved, they are able to face difficulties in the world, they are able to be courageous because they are strongly found, uh, their life is founded in the sense of being loved. And that is also true in, in our lives as well. Courage to face the strife of this world comes from remembering that we are loved, that there are those who love us, that God loves us, that our, the, the body of Christ loves, people in the church loves us that there are people rooting for us. And ultimately, there's God who is rooting for us. For Peter, the audience, they are not poor, even though they're persecuted. They are rich, they are empowered persons, possessing God's kindness and God's spirit in their life. Let us pray and let us um, uh, ask God to help us to uh, live in that abundance as well. Father in heaven, how easy it is sometimes when we go through difficulties to have a tunnel vision to not uh, to lose sight of what is uh, of the the, the realities uh, that you have called us to uh, to know and to experience. Um, sometimes we don't see the big picture, and when we go through strife and difficulties, discomfort, uh, we fail to remember the truth of your love, your calling, and your empowering. Lord, we ask that you'll give us the courage and the generosity. Um, 
that comes from looking to you. When we go through the storm, help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to turn our ears on what you tell us, that we are loved, that we are your people, and you have sent us to declare your praises to the world around us. So help us, God, in this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.